The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. For the last few months while I've been teaching here, and I've been away for the last month uh, teaching the month long at Spirit Rock, so it's been a while since I've been here. Um, but during this, this particular morning class, I've been going in depth on the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And since it's been quite a while, I'll just recap just a little bit about this and, and then bring you up to where we are at this point in the series. Uh, so the Four Noble Truths are kind of an expression of what the Buddha understood when he set out to answer his question, is it possible as a human being to live happily, to live without struggle, without distress? The word, the Pali word uh, that he used there was dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. Uh, but it's suffering in our language often means something very big. And the Buddha was pointing to not only the big kinds of suffering that we experience, but also to the subtle, the stress, the uh, confusion, the impatience, the resistance, all of that he incorporated in suffering. And he asked the question, can human beings live without this suffering? And so in his journey, in his exploration, he studied with a number of teachers and um, looked into his mind and understood that there was a particular kind of um, habit, let's say, habit in human minds uh, that is the source or the kind of the, the, the place where this movement to the experience of suffering begins. And that is um, craving. Ignorance and craving, these two kind of come together. And ignorance about what it is that leads to suffering leads us to crave things that are not reliable. Leads us to crave some kind of stability in this world, some kind of place to land, some kind of sense that if I just get this thing, if I just arrange my life in this way, then I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And, you know, we know consciously that for the rest of my life part is not probably going to happen, but that's still the way this craving works, the way this craving functions. So we orient towards getting things that we like that are pleasant, getting rid of things we don't like in this push-pull around pleasant and unpleasant, trying to arrange our lives to have primarily pleasant experience. And the Buddha points to you know, the impermanent nature of all experience, making it unreliable as a place for lasting happiness. And so inherently, if we kind of orient around this is what's going to make me happy, the impermanent, unreliable nature of that this thing that we have oriented around, it is going to decay, it is going to crumble. And at that point, 
there will be distress. There will be the loss of that, especially because we have kind of landed on it as being, oh, this will do it for me. And then we discover, no, actually, it didn't. Well, maybe there's something else that will do it for me. And so this, uh, this kind of cycle we get into around craving, around wanting to have things, get rid of things, all of that is based in what the Buddha said was the ignorance around suffering, how suffering is actually created. And so there is this connection. That, and another, uh, another word in, um, the word dukkha in the, the texts that the Buddha, that are come to us from the Buddha, uh, is used in a couple different ways. One is as this kind of suffering that we experience, the stress, the dissatisfaction, the frustration, the impatience, the rage, the anger, the confusion, all of, all of the uh, difficulties that we experience. That's one meaning the, of, of dukkha, is the, is the experience of suffering. And that is dependent on uh, the, an, another word that sometimes can be used to translate dukkha, the unreliability of experience. And so that unreliability is inherent in experience. It's not a relationship to experience. It's just the nature of experience to be unreliable. But it is our relationship to that unreliability that creates the experience of suffering. And so this is essentially what the, the Buddha discovered, that it is the, this, ex, this relationship to the unreliability that creates the human experience of struggle, of stress, of suffering. And so this is what he learned. And in his own experience, he found that the, the mind can release this habit of craving. So this is what we could call the, th- the third noble truth. The first noble truth, the truth there is, there is suffering. This, there is the truth of suffering, which I've just described, the truth of suffering. The, there is this unreliability. And then the second noble truth, our relationship to that unreliability creates the experience of suffering. And then the Buddha pointed to this possibility through his own experience of a reorientation, a a letting go of that habit of craving, a releasing of that habit, which is not easy. There are millions of years of human conditioning (laughs) that lead us in this direction to wanting to have what we What's pleasant? We'll need to get rid of what's unpleasant. And yet it is not hardwired into us. And it is possible to relate to experience in a new way. And so this is what the Buddha discovered in the third noble truth. It is possible. The ending of this craving is the ending of the suffering. The experience of suffering. It's not the ending of the unreliability because the unreliability continues. But it is the ending of the experience of suffering. And then he pointed to There is a way, a path, a kind of a set of tools that we can use that will help us find our own way to this end. Basically, he said, hey, I'm a human being. I found this path. He talked about it as if it was an old path. He gave this analogy 
of um, of finding um, ruins in a in a wilderness, in a forest, and how um, you know in 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 India, you know, I think there's a lot of um, almost like rainforest kind of things, and so things grow quickly and obscure paths. And so, you know, if, if there had been an old civilization, he said, you know, there's been this old civilization with great kings and queens and, um, and, and great palaces that have been overgrown in the forest and the woods, and the path leading to that has also been overgrown. And he said, he said, I found the way, I found the path that leads to this amazing place. And so he compared it to something that had been overgrown and obscured that path. Not that he made it up, but that he kind of um, uncovered what was already there, what's already possible. And so this is the Eightfold Path. And we can think of it as a set of eight tools or practices that help us to um, orient towards this truth, this understanding that the Buddha pointed to, the unreliability, the relationship to that unreliability leads to our distress our dissatisfaction. And um, the cultivation of these um, tools will help us to see that for ourselves. And he said, hey, I'm a human being. I I did this. I discovered this path. And having discovered it, I can share it with you. You know, just walk this way. Try this. (laughs) And so this Eightfold Path is um, wise, wise understanding, so the first two parts of the path are kind of an orientation towards the wisdom of what is it that creates suffering? So this, this wise view, this is essentially that kind of that understanding. It is this unreliability in our relationship to it. In a very simple way, we can say that is part of the wisdom. That is some of the wisdom that the Buddha offered. Impermanent nature of experience means experience is unreliable and uh, our relationship to that is what creates the suffering. And so given that, given this understanding, the, um, the, and, and that it is possible to be free from suffering, understanding this, uh, this possibility, this potential that the Buddha said, this can orient us to um, an intention towards cultivating those things that help us move away from suffering help us have a new re- help us into that new relationship and then the um the next part of the eightfold path is kind of an an understanding or a, an orientation around non-harming because if we um are serious about wanting to let go and reorient about around our own minds of not suffering in our own hearts and minds, then we also have to look at engaging in the world in a way that doesn't add suffering in our relationships. And so this is what we could call the ethical part of the path, the, the part that orients us to non-harming in our relationships. To me, this is beautiful that this is a part of the Eightfold Path, that it's not just the Eightfold Path firmly puts our relational field in our practice, 
our relationships with our communities, our families, our friends, people we know, people we don't know, this, uh, this non-harming attitude, this, this kind of intention towards non-harming, off, he offers some, some guidelines for us. You know, why speech? Not speaking in ways that create harm. Wise action, not acting in ways that create harm in this relational field. Wise livelihood, not engaging in a livelihood in a way that creates harm in the world. And so there's this, this aspect of the Eightfold Path. There's the beginning which we orient kind of in the direction of non-suffering. And one of the first kind of things that the Buddha points to is, okay, serious about orienting towards non-suffering? Then let's like clean up our relationships. And then there's the, uh, the kind of cleaning up the internal relationships, which is the third aspect of the Eightfold Path, looking at how are we adding suffering from this understanding around um, this habit of craving to things that are unreliable, ways to begin to unwind that internally. So this, this, this um, the third aspect of the Eightfold Path, the, the third three pieces, uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration are kind of the meditative tools that help us to see in our own hearts and minds where that craving, how that craving is working. And the, the very seeing of it, in my own experience, the very seeing of how it works is the beginning of its undoing. Which is a great thing because our rational minds often don't have the understanding of how to let go of that very deeply conditioned habit. But as the mind, as our minds begin to see and understand that those habits of craving and really, I think this is kind of the foundational reason this whole, this whole path kind of works. That when we become mindful, when we engage in this exploration, we orient to our experience, okay, well, oh, this is craving. This is the mind wanting to latch on to this thing and say, yeah, let's hold on to that. We see this happening. This desire, this greed, this aversion, the kind of latching on to not that, get rid of that. We see these happening in our minds. And in the seeing of it, the seeing of the craving, which encompasses both greed and aversion and includes the delusion of the belief that having that thing will make me happy for the rest of my life. Getting rid of that thing will make me happy. So this, um, this um, seeing of this, the greed and the aversion directly with mindfulness, our system our human organism directly experiences and understands this mind doing this habit of craving is suffering. It is not conducive to well-being. And so the mind begins to kind of, because it's getting this new information, it's kind of amazing to me when I first started really looking at my mind in the first few months of my practice, I was really exploring the aversive side because that was where my mind was so caught and so hooked. Um, you know, the, 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 the mind knew that it wasn't 
didn't feel good to be in that aversive place, but it also believed that the problem was out there. It believed that there was something wrong with the other person that I was angry at or something like that. And what I began to understand in the very first few months was, oh, this feeling, this anger hurts here. And it's not actually doing anything to that other person. In this case, I knew this because this person was like 7,000 miles away. So I, I could see that the, the kind of the, the mind had made this assumption was kind of operating in the belief, this is going to make the other person miserable. But I had missed the fact that I was miserable. It's kind of stunning when you see that. When, when the mind begins to understand that its strategies are not actually conducive to happiness, the organism, the, the kind of our, our, thankfully our organism, our system kind of wants to move in the direction of well-being but it has not been getting very uh, accurate information because of this delusion. And so we, in this uh, process of turning with wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration to our internal experience, our mind begins to get it. Oh, this isn't helpful. And that kind of, there's a kind of innate or kind of movement, the movement to well-being. Gil sometimes calls this a, you know, a biological imperative towards freedom and happiness. But it, that, that movement towards freedom and happiness has been co-opted by delusion, by thinking that getting these things, getting rid of these things is go- what's going to make me happy. And that uh, delusion is clueless about a different way. But our system is not clueless once it gets the information. And so the very seeing of our own internal craving begins to unwire (laughs) that habit and rewire different approaches. And so the, um, this is kind of the overview of the Eightfold Path and the place where we stopped last time, we've been talking about um, wise intention, the second aspect of the Eightfold Path. And wise intention is this kind of tipping point from kind of an understanding, a hearing of some kind of uh, wisdom or truth. The Buddha points to this truth of the unreliability and the truth that our mind's relationship to that unreliability is why we experience suffering. And with that kind of understanding, even if we don't really deeply understand it, in my own experience, it's kind of like, I don't get how this would work, but... You know, nothing else has worked, so I'm willing to give this a try. So if we're willing to step in to this path, this is where the, um, uh, the wisdom that's offered leads to an intention to engage. And so this, the intentions that are expressed in this wise intention are intentions that support the, uh, the understandings, intentions that help us to understand for ourselves these, this wisdom that the Buddha pointed to. And so the, uh, the in- wise intention is expressed in three parts. 
the intention towards renunciation, the intention towards kindness, and the intention towards non-cruelty or compassion. So the, um, I've talked in depth pretty much about the intention towards renunciation and the intention towards kindness, but I'll just say a couple things here because I had a reflection this morning that was kind of a new way of putting this together for me. Um, the intention towards renunciation is kind of uh, an expression around this very, this very point the Buddha made that things are unreliable and this movement or this relationship to that unreliability is where or why we suffer. And so this is really pointing to that, you know, when things are pleasant, we tend to like them, we want them. Things are unpleasant, not like them, we want to get rid of them. And so this is in the realm of, of sense desire, of wanting to be surrounded by things that are pleasant, not have things that are unpleasant. And this includes the sense desire around being appreciated and, and being respected. And so it's not just about material things. And that's not a bad thing to uh, be appreciated and be respected. But if we need that in order to be happy, we are essentially giving our happiness into the hands of somebody else's opinions. And we know our own minds are pretty, you know, all over the place. And so, you know, how reliable is that to place our happiness in the hands of other people? Now, we turn it around and think, oh, I just need to do these things. I just need to create the situation and engage in this way in my work so that then, of course, everybody would respect me. And so we, we, we pick it up. So this, um, this movement towards renunciation is about, uh, you know, recognizing that this movement towards needing certain things in our lives is basically putting our happiness onto the unreliable. And so this is where this, this begins, and this is, you know, kind of in a way I looked at this this morning because the next two actually, I like the kind of framing here. It's got both the internal looking at our own relationship. So the first wise intention is kind of looking internally to what's our relationship internally to what happens in the world. That's so looking directly at that craving. And then the other two wise intentions um, the intention towards kindness or the intention towards non-ill will, the intention towards compassion or the intention towards non-harming. This again puts us into the field of relationship. That we, having the intention towards the movement of freedom from suffering, we, um, we engage in intention towards kindness and compassion in our fields of relationship. So again, it, it, he brings in relationship. I mean, this, in, in often we think about meditation practices just being something that we do internally. But it is very much in this teaching both an internal and external path. So the, um, um, the first part of wise 
of wise intention, of the renunciation, is kind of looking internally, you know, to, well, how is this being, what is this kind of habit of craving? And can I explore letting go of some of the things, so this in terms of of action, the, the movement of renunciation is consciously letting go of things that we um, recognize we're relying on. Now this, this action of renunciation, in my experience, it's really important that this not be a repression of the wish or of the desire, not be a repression of that, you know, that wanting to be happy, not be a repression of that wanting to have something pleasant, but a full recognition of that and then a refraining, especially in areas where we see that we're really kind of moving into that direction with this, you know, craving perspective. So, and, and there's a lot, and I've talked about this a lot in the, in the, the one on renunciation, and so, you know, that, that has been recorded, and you can listen again um, for more on that. This is always kind of a little bit of a charged topic. <laughs> you know, there, there is, uh, we have a kind of a, oh, I'd say renunciation has a bad reputation or something. So, you know, it's, it's hard for us to understand. And so it takes some, some kind of real uh, reflection internally and thinking about this. Um, to really understand what's being pointed to here. And so first looking internally, you know, this intention towards renunciation, and then the next two intentions, again, towards, towards uh, others. So we, we kind of commit to looking internally to where is this habit, where are our habits of mind kind of harming ourselves? Where are we getting caught in this field of internal stress and suffering because as I said, you know, we feel the suffering of that when we see it. And then, um, and then a shift to relationship, the intention towards non-harming, towards l- kindness. I talked the last time I was here, I talked about the, the, the practice of metta, this uh, movement in the direction of may all beings be happy. And so this is, um, you know, the, the, the beginnings of our heart opening. And this, to me, this um, starting from the inside, we see how our heart is closed in our internal uh, relationships to our own experience. And as that begins to soften, there's a little more ease in terms of connecting to a softening of the heart in relationship to our communities and our friends and our families. And so this is uh, the beginnings of the heart opening with kindness, with care, with concern. And then a further stretch of that is this intention towards non-harming. This um, recognition, and it is a further stretch, um, um, that we, you know, we don't Given the heart that feels caring, that feels connected, when that, the heart feels connected and it sees or experiences somebody else suffering, it kind of resonates with this quality of compassion. 
And so this is the, the movement, a kind of a deeper movement of that heart that's connected, that resonating with the suffering of others. You know, often when we experience, it can be fairly, fairly um, easy to stay connected and open when, um, when things are going well. And as soon as, there can, as soon as there's some kind of struggle or suffering, you know, we do feel a pain or a kind of a, um, depending on the relationship, there can be many different responses when we feel that somebody else is suffering. If it's somebody that we don't like, if it's somebody that we feel is doing harm, we may actually in some ways delight in their suffering. If it's somebody we're close to, we may get a little drowned by their suffering, feel a little bit overwhelmed by that. We may experience in some cases a disconnection from the suffering in a form of, oh, thank goodness it's them and not me. Maybe experienced in the form of pity, for instance. And so there's lots of different relationships that we tend to have when we meet suffering in the world. And so the stretching of this heart of connection to really stay open, to really be able to resonate with the suffering of others, that feeling, it's, it's, a, it's kind of like there's a soft bowl of, of jelly or something in the area of our heart. And when there's a vibration in the field of suffering, that, that soft bowl of jelly kind of quivers. And so the, the softness of the heart responds in relationship to that suffering. Doesn't get tight, doesn't constrict, doesn't get hard, doesn't push away. It kind of takes it in. Oh, this is what it's like when somebody is suffering. It's kind of like the heart resonates or, empathi- or um, empathetically uh, vibrates with that suffering. So this intention towards harmlessness, this, uh, it, it, it's uh, kind of a, a part of the practice that we explore and look at when there are cruel, unkind thoughts. So much of this, I mean, we, we might think, I shouldn't be having those because the intention is towards kind thoughts and compassionate thoughts. And yet this is our mind. You know, it's, it shocked me at one point. I, I told a little bit of, briefly mentioned this person that I was angry with early in my practice. And looking at that anger, you know, I felt that was pretty justified myself. But, but as I looked at that and felt into um, what was going on there, there was a seeing or a recognition of, I hope that they suffer. You know, so there was that, there was, it, it, it was, it, that had been kind of below the surface. And in the watching what happened, you know, just, I don't even remember exactly how I saw this, but maybe some kind of thought that bubbled into my awareness that I could see, yeah, I hope that they're miserable. I hope that person's really miserable. And that was a kind of a, a humbling piece that in that moment 
I could see that there there were it was the intention of you know wishing it, not only you know it, it was really wishing harm on the other person that helped me to understand the seeing of that helped me to understand this is not just about my mind and in fact my mind kind of multiplied that by whatever 7 billion people it's like no wonder there's so much suffering in the world when minds have this capacity I mean I I think of myself as being a pretty kind person and yet there was this very unkind cruel thought in the mind seeing it is more than half the battle having it be witnessed not repressed. For me, seeing it was like, wow, that is in there. It was, it was both humbling and helped me to recognize that, you know, the, everything that I was experiencing, you know, in, in this particular moment of seeing, I recognized it just kind of as a condition at play and seeing that this is a kind of conditioning that's at play in everybody's mind. And so it was not so personal this helped me to hold it. And so the, the kind of the observing, this is one way into the, the exploration of non-harming, is to begin to see those thoughts of harming. To begin to acknowledge them, truthfully acknowledge them. If we're not truthfully acknowledging them, then they are under the covers and they're kind of, you know, operating the levers behind the curtain. So to see them, to pull back the curtain, like pulling back the curtain and the Wizard of Oz, you know, it's, it's, it, it changes the whole picture. So that's, that's one way, you know, not to, not to hate ourselves, not to judge ourselves for these thoughts, but to, but to appreciate, oh, they're being seen now. And in the seeing of them, there is a possibility because you know those they they express those those thoughts do express a kind of a movement towards cruelty towards ill will towards uh, the, the constriction of the heart and when they're seen and if they're not seen if they're not seen then we'll probably habitually act on those thoughts and intentions but when they are seen there can be choice there can be the, the possibility of saying, oh, that's there. And maybe I don't have to act on that. This is one of the powers of seeing intention. That we can, in the seeing of intention and the kind of the motivation that's connected with it, we can begin to see which motivations, which intentions and motivations are useful and which are constricted, which are onward leading which are connected with generosity and love and compassion and wisdom, and which are connected with greed and aversion. And and there is, in the seeing of intention, a possibility to act differently. Again, because when when we're not aware of it, those levers are being pulled behind the curtain. When we are aware of it, the levers may still be being pulled, but we can at least recognize Oh yeah, that's happening. Maybe I can refrain from acting here.
And this is where it begins to move into the next part of the path, which we'll talk about more next time, where it begins to move into, so the intention towards non-harming moves us into the the kind of, um, the actions connected with refraining from harm, refraining from harming other beings. And so seeing of that intention helps us to not take actions that cause harm. So the Buddha, in his um, teaching, has one uh, teaching on this expression of non-harming that you know, he, he offered to his son. And um, I'll just briefly review it. It's a, a teaching he offered to his son when his son was seven years old. And so it's a teaching that a child can understand. And it's about ethics. And it's about looking at when you're getting ready to do something, reflecting. Is this going to make somebody else feel bad? The words used were, is this going to create affliction for yourself or for another? Or both? If it is, he said, "Don't, don't do it. And then he said, while you're doing something, check, is it creating affliction for self or other or both? If it is, stop doing it. And, and as along the way, he said, if you don't see that it's going to create affliction, then go ahead. If you don't see that it is creating affliction, then go ahead. After you've done something, again, check, did it create affliction? If it did, undertake restraint in the future and make amends. And he said, if it didn't create affliction, you can rejoice that it did not cause suffering in the world. So there's a few things I like about this. You know, it really does point to this intention, this piece around we can be aware of an action before we act. This is a crucial point for our practice, that there is this, this kind of process in our bodies and minds. It's like there's this little impulse that's this moment of getting ready to do something. And we can know that before we do it. We can know we're going to act before we act. We can know we're going to speak before we speak. It is even possible to know we're going to think or move in the direction of an emotion before that happens. That's a much subtler kind of expression. And, but these first two are really within the realm of, of ethics. We can know we're going to speak before we speak. We can know we're going to act before we act. And in the knowing of that, just the, the mindfulness there, the moment of knowing that, we can reflect we can recognize, oh, this is what the mind is getting ready to do. This is the intention. This is where the action is headed. Is this a good idea? Does this, is this, you know, and, and often looking into the motivation is really helpful there. If there's a kind of a motivation or a spin of anger or hatred or confusion or, or a craving, that's a warning. And, and often that will be felt as tension and tightness. So for me, this is, this is like my guide right now. When I'm taking an action, when I'm experiencing things, it's like, does the heart feel constricted? Probably some kind of craving there. Does the heart feel open, soft, relaxed? That's more trustable. 
can act from that place. And so the other piece, so that's one piece that's, um, that's beautiful about this teaching. It is pointing us to noticing that intention, particularly before we act and speak. And then there is um, uh, the reviewing afterwards, a continuing reflection, not only before, but also while and after we act. So we can begin to um, learn from our experience. If you're following this all the way through, you know, the, the reflect before, during, you know, you, you, you may, you, you realize it, you know, you may realize, yes, I'm, I'm acting with the best of intentions. I'm not feeling that constriction of heart. And yet what can happen is that our actions do create affliction. And in that place, the Buddha said, you know, look afterwards. Did it create affliction? And he said, undertake restraint. But I think also there's a place for reflecting on what happened. Not just to say, well, it wasn't my intention to create suffering, so it must have been their problem. There's almost always something to learn there. It may not be that we could have done anything any differently. Maybe there was something that we didn't know. Maybe there was some information that, would, that we can learn from. Something that we can then carry into the future, having learned that. And so this is a, this is a, a great um, reflection to make. It's like, what did I not understand? Is there something I can learn? And if, if, it, if it happened in a relationship that's close, then you could you know, maybe have that conversation. You know, you know, gee, I was really thinking that this was helpful. What didn't I understand? What was going on on your side? At times we, we don't have that freedom to have that conversation. But there are other ways to, to learn, to talk to friends, to, you know, see, gee, I stumbled into this thing with this person. And, you know, what might I have missed? So not to beat ourselves up about it, but to commit to what can we learn when there is that affliction created. So this reviewing, this reflection and reviewing, really helpful to not do it in a judgmental way, but to do it in a way that is supportive of, I want to learn, I want to grow. And what can I learn? So another thing that I'll just mention briefly um, in terms of cultivating this intention towards non-harming, the intention towards compassion. So I think there's really two threads of it. There's this this intention towards non-harming, which is refraining from things that will cause harm, that movement in the direction of ethics. And then there's the active cultivation of a compassionate heart, which is a kind of a step beyond simple ethics. And, and yet there is a connection there. What I've seen in my own experience is that when I engage ethically, when I engage with the intention of non-harming, it creates the conditions for the feeling of compassion to grow. It's not um, a simple 
kind of connection. But it, it does allow there to be more possibility for compassion to grow as we refrain from, from harm. So a story uh, about that. Um, I'll do the brief form of this story. Um, I was ex- practicing for a while around not killing the ants in my kitchen and um, how to do that. And it was a major process for me that took a lot of time. And um, over the course of the weeks of doing this, there was an interesting thing I noticed. I was starting to come into relationship with these ants. It created the field of relationship. I no longer looked at them as other. I looked at them as fellow beings on this planet. And there was a moment when observing these ants, I experienced, I saw one, one um, ant in particular behaving in a way that I interpreted was suffering and distress. You know, I don't know what was going on for the ant, but it sure looked like it was strange behavior. And it, the, the feeling in my heart in that moment was just like, oh, this being is suffering. And I hadn't even intended this process of engaging in non-harming around ants to, to move in the direction of compassion. But that is what happened. And so that is one way to begin this cultivation. As we engage in this relationship of non-harming, it puts us in a more skillful relationship to people, which creates the conditions for the heart to be open. And then there's the more formal or active practice of, of um, c- compassion, cultivating compassion that's very similar to the practice of cultivating loving kindness. It's using thoughts actively in the mind to express the wish of, may you be free from suffering. May you not have this distress in your life when a being is suffering, to connect to that and to wish them to, to be free from it. So this is the use of thought. We bring somebody into mind who is perhaps experiencing some kind of suffering and we wish, may you be free from that. Sometimes people feel, um, um, in particular situations, like you know, somebody who has a terminal illness, for instance, um, we may feel like wishing that is not in alignment with what's even possible. May you be free from this illness. You know, that would be a wish that we, we might make for somebody with terminal illness. May you be free from this illness. And yet because it, we understand that it may not be possible, we may feel like the wish is inappropriate. If that's the case, you, know, you, you might explore a different kind of wish. May you be at ease with this suffering or you know, something like that. But at the same time, what I like to point to is the wish itself is what we're, we're cultivating. The heart of that wish is what we are opening to. And if you did have some kind of a magic wand and could have that person be free from suffering, wouldn't that be your wish? That is what we, we connect to, is the wish. Because that is the, the heart, that open heart. And so, you know, sometimes... Uh, you know, we, we can't let our sense of what's re- real, <laughs> you know, get in the way of the wish. 
And yet we also have to recognize that conditions are what they are and we cannot cling to that wish. That's the true compassion, that we make that wish but we don't cling to it. So there's quite a lot to to say about this cultivation of compassion, um, but it's time to stop. (laughs) And uh, I'll just end with a... um, a quote from the uh, one of the suttas that kind of speaks to this right intention, and it's got it begins with a very famous quote by the Buddha: "Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind." This is a, a foundational principle about how our minds work, and is very resonant with what neuropsychology teaches neuroscience teaches this this uh, you know this when there's something that happens a lot in our brain the uh, neurons kind of say that must be important and kind of shore that one up if we frequently think and ponder as the buddha says if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sense desire one abandons thoughts of renunciation to cultivate thoughts of sense desire if one frequently thinks upon and ponders thought of, will, of ill will, one abandons thoughts, thoughts of non-ill will to cultivate thoughts of ill will. If one frequently thinks upon and ponders thoughts of cruelty, one abandons thoughts of non-cruelty to cultivate thoughts of cruelty. And so this points to how we can, you know, first of all, begin to recognize these, as I pointed to, that itself is a powerful tool to just recognize that we are having these thoughts and then we, we can kind of bring in the intention of the opposite kind of thought, beginning to kind of rewire those patterns in our mind. And so if we frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of kindness, that becomes more the inclination of our mind. If we frequently ponder thoughts of compassion, that becomes more the inclination of our mind. So, it's time to stop. No time for questions this morning, but if any of you have questions, I'm happy to stay for a little bit longer and just meet your questions. So, thank you for your attention.